You're listening to The New Leaf Project, sharing stories from instigators, innovators, planters and starters from across Canada. Hi, my name is Elle. And I'm Jared. And you are listening to The New Leaf Project. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out with us today on this lovely day. Now, Elle, just to, I got to interrupt you for oh, a second. I'm sorry okay. to interrupt. No, it's fine. I'm used to it. I have been noticing something noticing something weird about you lately. Just lately or like? Yes, lately. Just lately. It's, it, okay. I think it started, I don't know actually when it started, but it's been in the, in, in maybe the last month or so. And, and so you and I, we don't, we don't uh, live in the same town. I live in Saskatoon. You live in Kitchener. Uh, if you don't know how far away that is, it, it would literally take us 32 hours to drive door to door or something along those lines. We do video conferences all the time. And, uh, and that, and that's how we communicate. We communicate over email and we have lots of video meetings. And here is the weird thing I've noticed. Every time we start a video meeting now, instead of seeing your face with your headphones plugged in, I see gray, I see gray. So tell me why I am seeing gray every time we start a video conference now. What's going on with you, El? Is that, it's is that weird. You, do you need like b- better glasses? Is that? No, 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 there's no. something else afoot there, Al. Why don't you cop to it? Tell the people what weird thing you're up to. Well, I've started um, putting like tape over my uh, laptop. Uh, what's that thing called? Camera. That's the word. Yeah, your webcam. My webcam. Uh, Why would you do that? Well, uh, I saw, I read something and then I saw something and then I saw this video with Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and he had it and I was like, what's going on? And you know, funny enough, um, I was actually just in a meeting with a client and he opened up his laptop and he's in the software world and sure enough, he had tape and, and a little odd contraption that he puts near his microphone slot to scramble the voices or the noise that comes through his laptop. And, uh, and what's even weirder is I listened to uh, your interview with the gentleman you're interviewing today, that same day. And so uh, why are you making me paranoid, Jared? Why are you, why are you creating paranoia in my heart <laughs> where the peace of lo- the Lord should be? <laughs> well, I'm not trying to make people paranoid because um, – this is not. This can move into the, what we're talking about today. Is surveillance is is the way in which uh, the current economy is actually moving toward what we act, what we call a surveillance economy. So, what a surveillance economy is is the way in which a company will sell your information and part of your life story to corporations. So. Part of Facebook, something that everybody's on, no one has paid for that service. In fact, Facebook couldn't function if people had to pay for that service. That's part of how it grew quickly. But you do pay for the Facebook service because Mark Zuckerberg, your buddy there, uh, he sells everything you post to Facebook, your, your preferences, your gender, your age, all of that information goes to corporations, and then he sells advertising to them. 
Uh, that's what a surveillance-based economy is. Google does the same thing with Google AdWords. With Google, uh, when you take on Gmail, they read everything you write in an email. They have a database and they use those that information to sell targeted advertising to you. And so we're, we have a new form of, of an economy happening in the Western world. It's called the surveillance economy. And it, this is not, I know it sounds like tinfoil hat stuff. But I swear to you, it isn't. And to prove that I'm not crazy and that you're not crazy for putting tape over your webcam um, is because uh, our TVs are starting to listen to us. Our cell phones are starting to listen to us. They're tracking our movements. This isn't the Illuminati. This, these are corporations and now through the revelations of Edward Snowden and, and many other whistleblower type folks, this is happening all of the time. And I'm proving it's not uh, uh, tinfoil hat stuff because I've brought on the show an academic, uh, a person who is a university professor. He's one of the most level-headed people that I know. His name is David Lyon. He is a professor of theology at Queen's University. I've known him for years. He was part of my my first church plant. And and he is a leading expert, a global expert on surveillance. And so in today's episode, we're going to listen to David describe for us what a surveillance economy is, how surveillance works, and what's actually going on in the world. And to get us thinking like Christians about this particular reality. So I'm really excited about this episode, and I think people should give it a listen. Well, I've got my tinfoil hat ready, so hopefully you do too. You're not going to need it, (laughs) but I'm glad you have it ready. All right, give this episode a listen. All right, hello everybody. Uh, I'm sitting here in one of my favorite places on planet Earth, actually. David Lyon's kitchen. Sue and David Lyon. I've been long-term friends. David is is someone that I, I deeply respect. He's a sociologist at Queen's University. Um, and his area of expertise is in around the subject of surveillance. But you write on all kinds of things. And because of your Christian faith, you've, you've written books that don't necessarily have to do with surveillance, but thinking Christianly about things. You wrote uh, a book a number of years ago, Jesus in Disneyland. Um, how many books have you written, David? Oh, my land. I think I've been involved in 28. 28? Um, but sole authored, probably a dozen. Wow. Wow. I mean, the others are edited collections that I've been the editor of and so on. Okay, okay. And one of my favorite uh, moments uh, in Next Church history was when you worked with a number of churches to do a thing called the Invisible College, and your series was called Thinking About Things. You have a good memory. Well, it, it, it really stuck out, David. And... Thinking about things was taking ordinary, everyday objects and thinking about their implications for daily life and and asking us to think more Christianly about yep. things. Yep. So some of the things I think we talked about were the cell phone, the computer, yep. the car, and I think 
when you and I were rehearsing this list earlier, Sue shouted in the microwave. Microwave, yeah, I think that was it. And the washing machine, I yep. think. Yeah. And the the implica- implications for culture. Yeah. And so you've been one of my go-to people when I have uh, questions about things. Yeah, and we were we were talking about. Um, what the Bible says about things that the Bible says nothing about. Right. I mean, that was a kind of tagline that went with it. Which is uh, is a challenging thing, but it's something that every generation faces. Um, uh, that there's something you have to deal with, but the Bible doesn't talk specifically about washing machines. Yep. But what should we do about them? Or automobiles? Or, or cell phones. Or cell yep. phones, yeah. Yep. So... This is something I wanted to ask you about because this fits into your area of expertise. Here's something I noticed about, well, I've noticed it for a while, but it really struck me just this week. Spent last week researching on Amazon. I'm looking for a lens for my camera. And uh, I looked on Kijiji and I looked a little bit on Amazon. And for the last week, every website I go to, whether it's a news website or a recipe website or nothing to do with cameras. There's pictures of lenses in the ad. So what's going on there, David? What's happening to me? And why is that? How do they know? How do they know I've been looking at lenses? Listen, Jared, it's not just you. I I direct this thing called the Surveillance Study Center. And you should see my uh, email feed. Every single day, I have people advertising security cameras and spy systems and heaven knows what else. I mean, I have Chinese ones, I have Russian ones, I have American ones. I have ads from all over the world just because there's an obvious connection between my name and the word surveillance. So, but I mean, what's, what is going on there? Um, basically, what we think of as these media of communication, mm-hmm. the cell phone, the computer, yes. the things we use on a day-to-day basis, yes. and what we think of as a means of passing our messages or obtaining information, what these systems are doing simultaneously, as we think of them one way, is doing something quite different, which is to extract the data that they can from those systems in order to, well, basically make money. I mean, they, they are all corporations that are trying to make a profit. So um, Kijiji or mm-hmm. Amazon or whatever, they're all there to make a profit, not to give us a free service. Uh, they, uh, As soon as we think that it's a free service, then we discover that actually we're the commodity that is uh, being sold because it's our data that are being extracted by those corporations, not just extracted, but extracted and stored, not just stored, but being analyzed. And uh, our profiles are being uh, broken down and uh, turned into very sophisticated systems for advertising purposes, really for creating the consumers that those corporations want, because they are forming us, they're shaping us to be the consumers that they need in order to maintain their profit levels or their market niche or whatever their particular business plan is. In the last few decades, the uh, value of personal data has grown hugely around the world. So that, uh, for example, there's a Harvard Business School professor and uh, she writes about basically the Google model Mm -hmm. and, and how valorizing 
personal data, giving it value, economic value, is producing something that she actually calls surveillance capitalism. Interesting. I mean, she's saying that the new mode of uh, accumulating within a capitalist system is precisely around personal data. So what we think of as, you know, the wonderful internet that gives us all sorts of uh, benefits, including Google. I mean, our lives are becoming an open book to Google and all the other uh, corporations. And of course, they not only collect, analyze and store those data, but they're buying and selling them the whole time. I mean, part of the multi-billion dollar wow. uh, corporations are called data brokers, and they're operating between these different organizations, and they buy and sell personal data of different kinds, and all kinds of, not just corporations, but other agencies may well benefit from obtaining those data, determining, I don't know, traffic, uh, traffic management plans for new cities, mm -hmm. for, for, for new developments within cities, and so on and so forth. So these data are, are becoming hugely important, and so... Our engagement with those media is part of a much bigger world that is unseen to us and uh, yet very influential on our own lives. So, and, and so it's interesting you say it's not just corporations that are asking these kinds of questions and, and, and storing and querying and Googling us, but it's actually our own governments and foreign governments even yep. uh, that are are Googling as well. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the things you've learned uh, through your research about what governments are up to? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe one of the most obvious connections is uh, after 9-11, um, suddenly there was this uh, unprecedented attack on uh, New York and Washington. And um, they were scrambling to try to work out what sort of... Um, response could be made that was going to be going to actually meet what appeared to be a threat and of course the threat was m magnified grossly by the media but still there was obvious loss of life and a, and a, an apparent threat and um so very quickly the um current administration developed what they call the department of homeland security and uh, that was invented within weeks. And uh, the Department of so Homeland Security, instead of going directly to the CIA or the FBI or the NSA, the National Security Agency, actually used methods from CRM. 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 What now, is that? that an agency you'd heard of? No. 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 Jared, that's because it's customer relationship management. <laughs> what? In other words, a marketing tool. What? Really? Was seen as a key way. Well, think about it. The marketers are trying to identify and isolate within their identification people who are most likely to purchase the kinds of goods and services that right. they are right. selling. The security agencies are trying to identify and isolate the kinds of people who may have certain violent proclivities or connections okay. with terrorist groups or whatever. Okay. Very similar kinds of activities. And so that which I'm calling surveillance is actually a set of practices that are in common across a whole range of, you know, whether we're talking healthcare or marketing or educational um, software and analytics, uh, right through to uh, national security agencies and so on. So, you know, I'm thinking of surveillance really as um, the uh, collection and or, or the, 
yeah, the operations and the experiences of collecting and analyzing personal data uh, for whatever purpose. Okay. So I, I, I have that kind of, if you like, neutral definition of it, because then you can see, oh, yeah, that works for marketing, that works for national security, that works for policing, that works for healthcare, And so by thinking of it that way, you, you, you can say, well, yeah, it's a set of practices that, that looks like this, and, and it changes its shape depending on what is um, under scrutiny. Mm-hmm. But it's also amenable to uh, reusing the same data for different purposes, which, of course, starts to contravene what used to be thought of as essential privacy principles or data, data protection principles. So it, it does raise questions and, and continues to raise questions. That's why it's also so controversial. So you're saying some of the same, like surveillance isn't, it's, it's something that my doctor does for me. It's something that, um, uh, you know, shoppers drug mart or whomever I get my medications from, they're trying mm-hmm. to watch out for like, there's a good aspect of surveillance and then there's a bad aspect. And so how, how, like, tell me a little bit about like, this is really coming to the forefront mm-hmm. in, in the news. Um, yeah, uh, not a day passes without some comment on a data breach or on some new device like the uh, Stingray system that police in Canada are now using in some cities for uh, obtaining uh, data about those who are uh, within range uh, in order to try to, well, what they're doing really is intercepting cell phone signals in order to obtain data from whole groups in the population. So all those kinds of things just come up in the, in the news the whole you're time. You're saying that's happening in Canada right now? Yeah, we have Stingray. Uh, they first they first uh, admitted to using that system in, uh, in Vancouver just a few months ago. But yeah, all those things are happening all the time. And um, yeah, it's... Really, it's just become part of the way that the world works. This is the world that we've made, after all. And uh, I would say that surveillance is as old as the hills. It's, 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 it's a human thing that we do, watching over others, if you like, okay. for whatever purpose. I mean, you watch over children to ensure they're safe. I'm glad when I go swimming that there is uh, a lifeguard there because that person is watching over me. They're taking note okay. of my personal movements and of uh, any data they can see. I mean, if I appear to be coming breathless or whatever, they're there to check on exactly those observable data. And I am glad. Right. So, you know, it's not something that is sinister, by definition. It's sure. something that is a human activity. But it but sure like, feels like But sinister. like every other yeah. human activity, it is also amenable to ethical critique and assessment. We have to say, well, to what extent, just like you were saying, is, right. is, is, this, a, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Well, it's, it's not one of those things. It is neither good nor bad in itself, but it's never, ever neutral. And it's always something that we should be assessing and say, well, how far is this appropriate? How far is that appropriate? This seems to be a good thing, but is it? What's what's behind it? And, you know, I think we need to be much more sensitive to those kinds of questions. So what you're saying, I think what you're saying is that I don't I don't really have a choice of whether I am part of this surveillance society. It's around me. It's a there's no real like. Do you 
Can you, can you suggest somewhere you would go to evade it? I mean, I don't know. people talk about, you know, taking off for the wilderness. Well, with mm -hmm. GPS and with uh, drone systems and with the expansion of cell phone towers to remote places, uh, just about in every conceivable way. Uh, <laughs> however far you go, it really isn't possible to, as it were, hide. Um, and that needn't necessarily be something that is paranoia-inducing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally opposed to considering paranoia as an option. Conspiracy theories and paranoia, it seems to me, are complete distractions from the real issues. Paranoia is paralyzing right. because... You know, you're always looking around for who it is that's watching you and what might be happening and what they might be doing. I mean, you're actually in Canada much more likely to be hit by lightning or uh, attacked by a bear than ever having anything to do with any kind of terrorist activity. So put it in context. But, you know, if there is something that can be uh, souped up into a, a, a fearful situation, then it'll be taken advantage of, and then it'll be media magnified. And, mm -hmm. um, and that is a very risky situation for ordinary citizens in any country, because then, you know, those who are normally saying, oh, yes, we must be law-abiding citizens, say, well, there's exceptions to that for a situation of terrorist activity or whatever. And that is... is it's a real risk. So if I don't have a choice in whether or not I participate in this system, so I can't go around it, can't go under it, got to go through it. Um, how, as a Christian, should I be responding to this state of surveillance that, that I am in? How mm -hmm. do I think like a Christian in, in, in this way? Yeah, I already made some comments about paranoia and that is not being a, an appropriate way forward. I don't think complacency is a helpful way forward okay. either uh, or kind of resignation. Mm -hmm. You know, you say, well, if the whole world's been made like this, then what can I do? I'll just get on with my uh, my little business and uh, and go about my day. And of course, to an extent, we have to do that. There isn't a way of evading it, but there is a way of, and I think here's a, a, a crucial thing, of working locally. Okay. It is global. We are talking about global networks. We are right. talking about corporate businesses that are enterprises that are planetary. I mean, they're not just local things, but there are local um, evidences and there are local situations in which we all work. And the organizations that we work for are ones that have to determine which software system they're going to use. And then we can start to ask questions about, well, how appropriate is this for the people that actually work here? Is anyone disadvantaged by using this system? Okay. And uh, so those kinds of questions, I think, can be asked. And do we need to collect all these data? And sometimes there's a really good case to be made for data minimization which is to say, we don't actually need to know all that stuff. Why do we do it? At our own university, we started a bit of data minimization, which I was very pleased about, around uh, data collected on uh, entering students. And once upon a time, given the kind of university that uh, Queen's is, there was a great interest in whether your parents, grandparents and great-grandparents went to Queen's before you. And Checking of course, for alumni. Yeah, precisely. Okay. But also helping to foster an ongoing kind of oh. white hegemony at Queen's. Wow. Of course it would, because, you know, they were 
Scottish in the first place. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, so you, you, you know, you you can actually create a situation in which you are perpetuating. Uh, something that is not helpful at all in an increasingly multicultural society, and one in which uh, diversity is, um, is, a, is is flourishing and and actually contributes to our civic life. So there was a the move. There was a move deliberately taken to limit the number of fields that you would ask incoming students about. Did the whole Queen's alumni system and the whole Queen's uh, registration system collapse with data minimization? Of course, it didn't. I mean, it seems to me that this is this is a crucial thing. Um, as we discovered after the Snowden disclosures in, in 2013, those national security agencies, as I say, are heavily dependent upon data that comes from social media and cell phone use. Interesting. So there's a there's a connection already there. So in other words, the way that we do our social media the way that we connect with others, though it's vital to our everyday lives, is something in which our own behaviours can make a difference so that we can learn to be, in this case, what you might call digital disciples. We could think about, well, what is an appropriate way forward here? How do we, not just on a kind of etiquette level, although given some of the awful things that get reported about um you know and and that one sees in online activities be nicer on facebook there could be something more than just we could we could do well to think about some rather deeper Mm -hmm. issues that uh, have to do with more than just being nice to your friends in a good canadian way but there's also ways in which uh, we allow ourselves to be shut into kind of filter bubbles where it's only views that are similar to our own that we're aware of well, how can you be? How can you be welcoming to strangers and people from different backgrounds if not only all you know is about whatever it is that your own ethnic background is, group of people, but you've also been exposed only to relatively negative views of certain kinds of other people who are then othered, they, they become an other that is treated with less respect. So what I, I think, what I hear you saying is that that this isn't, if we just treat this as an individual uh, effort, better passwords, use encryption, um, picking which service and understanding that, that end user license agreement or... Uh, that, that there are things we could do as a church. Are there any other things that you think churches should be doing or uh, keying into in this dialogue around surveillance mm-hmm. and around uh, around these issues? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, one, of the, um, one of the things I think people don't really think about enough is not just how surveillance affects me, personally, but how it affects whole groups of people in the population. Because as I say, it really works through what I call social sorting. The surveillance systems are there to sort between different categories of consumers, different categories of uh, airline passengers, different categories of whatever, and, and to treat those different categories differently, which means that there are always going to be specific categories that are actually disadvantaged. I mean, you mentioned Shoppers Drug Mart. Mm-hmm. You know, the emphasis is on the rewards. What about people who are cut off from certain markets because of their profile online? So, you know, it's 
it's also a question of fairness and justice. And, uh, you know, the biblical, the biblical scriptures really emphasize God's interest and care for and concern with those who are disadvantaged in whatever way, economically and in uh, other ways forms of stigma and so on. Uh, and so I think, you know, Christian believers, churches, would do well to think about how people might be disadvantaged, disempowered, disenfranchised, made voiceless by these systems. We should be thinking about, yeah, well, who, who is advantaged? Who is disadvantaged? Because these subtle and less than visible means are exactly the ones that help to organise our lives in a particular way that affects our actual choices, our life chances. So what I hear you saying, this is a large issue. It's, it's something that, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think I can any longer afford not to know how some of these things work or, or the, just even understand some of the broad strokes of, of these issues. So how would I, uh, just as a normal person, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a sociologist. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, tenured professor at Queen's University, how does a normal person start to get a handle on, on what's going on, what, how we can be thinking about things, uh, those kinds of things? Mm -hmm. how, do I, how do I start to get a handle mm -hmm. on what's happening? Well, you know, just in, in everyday life, we have to learn to be people who can think with others without necessarily thinking uh, exactly on the same criteria as okay. others. And as I say, there are, there are basic you know, values that Christian people would want to adhere to that have to do with um, relationships and relationships of love and trust and compassion and forgiveness. I mean, all those kinds of things, I would say, come right into the questions that we're talking about in terms of personal data. For example, if you are working with some organization that seems to want to keep your personal data for a really long time, just in case. And that organization happens to be policing. That means that there's always going to be a, a doubt, a hesitation around this person's record. Nothing criminal necessarily, but just a hint. Mm. And that it's an unforgiving matter. And, and also people entering the US from Canada have, uh, have found that very minor infractions in Canada have led to refusal of entry into the US. So, you know, there's, there are basic questions of forgiveness there. Should we not demand of our systems that are used by human beings after all, and made by human beings, that they build in forgiveness? Mm. What about trust? What about love? I mean, I think there are ways in which those rather basic things that have been believed by followers of the way for hundreds and hundreds of years can be brought right into our digital modern world. Well, that's what I like about uh, when you describe this. Sometimes when I think about it, it's, it's too big. But when you bring it down to matters of trust, forgiveness, love, uh, justice those are all places that that i feel more equipped mm -hmm. to speak to mm -hmm. uh, i'm just not used to asking a system to do it it's still personal data when you share something on facebook and then it gets 
uh, or, or on Twitter or something, mm-hmm. it gets retweeted and, and so on and so forth. Well, being more careful about what it is that goes there in the first place is part of the process of that whole system becoming more human. It seems to me that we, we really have to do a lot of thinking about the fact that w- that which we now use in everyday life, it, there isn't something called cyberspace that is separate from our everyday lives. There isn't some kind of a, a neat distinction between online and offline worlds. The online world is our world. And it seems to me we need to learn to live in it in a way that is consistent with our deepest convictions. That's Thank you so much for this, David. One of the things I'm taking away from this is, is that we need to do more thinking about being digital disciples. That's mm-hmm. a very helpful. Um, if, if you would like to, if, if I want to go a little bit deeper, I want to find some, uh, some writers or thinkers who are, 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 are maybe thinking about this from a faith perspective. Can you give me any, anybody I should be paying attention to these mm-hmm. days? My own research team produced a book that um, we, in, in which we wanted to try to make clear what kind of a world we live in in Canada today because of surveillance. It's called Transparent Lives. And, you know, we're, my team is not a bunch of Christians. My team is uh, me, and uh, I lead a, a group of academics. But we try to put it at least in everyday language so that it could be understood. It's also in both official languages. It's a book that you can purchase, but it's also freely available online. You can download it as a complete book in English or French. It's just called Transparent Lives. Transparent Lives. So that's, you know, on the level of trying to put it in the vernacular. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Well, maybe not first, but it's a first for me. Um, We've got some thinking to do. We've got some work to do. And we've got some living to do as, as God's people to try to understand how to live human lives in a transparent and surveilled world, um, a world that's watching. Um, and uh, so you've got some things to, to think about. You've got some things to get on the internet and start Googling. And uh, I want to say thank you very much to you, David, for being on the show and just being a guide to us. Thank oh, you very much. You're more than welcome. Well, Jared, I put my tinfoil hat away. I I crunched it up for another day. So thank you for that, for uh, assuaging my fears. Assuage? Is that a right word? No? Maybe? You're close. I think that's English anyway. Well, hey. Great interview. Loved it. Found it very fascinating. But Jared, what does that have to do with church planting and starters here in Canada. I mean, we we have said time and time again that this podcast is to share the stories of instigators, innovators, planters, and starters from across Canada. So can you tell me how that conversation helps us think about planting and starting here in Canada? Okay. You don't have to buy my line of reasoning, but here's what I'm thinking about. I want to try a little experiment in 2017 uh, uh, that I call future landscapes. And the idea is I w- it's sort of a food for thought uh, sort of series. So this is going to be sort of a mini series inside of our podcast, a little experiment. And here's what I know about planters. We 
often read the work of academics, theologians, and thinkers. Um, so things like The Last Great Good Place that was written in the early 90s affects a lot of churches. And you'll hear church planners talk about third spaces all the time. That's not because they came up with that idea. It's because an academic who was writing about life in the Western world came up with that idea in the early 90s. And then what's so fascinating, and this is what makes the body of Christ a body, is, is that um, church planters have taken that information and they have, they've, they've thought it through, they've operationalized it, they've uh, embodied it in a neighborhood, and then they've made it a part of how they plant churches. So one of the things that I find interesting about church, the starters and planters, is that our function isn't necessarily always to think up the new ideas, but it is to live out or imagine how Christians would, would uh, respond to or how Christian life, what Christian life looks like uh, it, in light of this information. Richard Florida has come up with several ideas that I know church planters are, are connecting with. Um, some of David Fitch's ideas, which are theological in nature, the way he brings in Slavoj Žižek and the way he talks about um, uh, church history have affected planters. And so my goal with these future landscapes, I'm not telling you the story of a starter or a planter. What I'm trying to get you to do is think a little bit more about what's out there, some trends. And what's interesting about the subject of surveillance is that this is becoming more and more a part of the reality. The internet, it does a lot of amazing things. But one of the most amazing things it does is it opens us up to being watched. Our inmost thoughts, our movements, who we talk to, what we talk about, what we're looking at, all of that stuff is literally going on record. I think it's going to fundamentally change how life in Canada works, how life as a Westerner works. It's becoming an, a, 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 an underpinning of our, our economic reality. And, and quite honestly, I don't really know where this, how this uh, directly applies to starters and planters. But what I do know is that they're really good at helping embody this. So I'm giving you food for thought. I'm adding grist for the mill. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you something to chew on because I think, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a massive trend in Canadian culture. As I've said before, it's, it's the underpinnings starting to be the underpinnings, of our economy. And, uh, we're at the beginning stages of even what the internet is. Uh, we are like in the 1920s with the automobile and we haven't seen drive-through culture yet. We haven't built interstate roadways yet. We haven't uh, developed uh, suburbs and sleeper bedroom communities for, for massive economic centers. So the internet, yes, it's new. Yes, it's cool. But it hasn't, it, it's about to shape our, our society in ways we haven't thought. And believe me, in church history, this has mattered. Uh, in my own movement, the Free Methodist Church in Canada, a lot of our church planning happened along rail lines. So planters would get off the train and start little churches and they would follow the rail lines. Hmm. When the road system came in in Canada, some of the churches that we planted along the rail lines, some of the towns that were started along the rail lines... They disappeared because the rail lines were not the main mode of transportation anymore. It became the roadways. And so church, churches followed that technology. 
So there are ways that these technological trends, they do affect our lives. They do shift what what Canadian life looks like. And so it's up to planters to respond. So like I said, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here now, but that's, that's part of the, the, the charm of this podcast is rambling. Uh, and <laughs> so I don't know. I feel nervous, I guess, that you asked me that question and I don't have a good answer, but that's, that's the best I can come up with. So I wasn't trying gonna, to make you nervous. That was not the goal. But it, I, that's the weird thing about me is when I get nervous, I talk too much because I think that by talking, I'll dig myself out of a hole. You must be nervous it, a lot. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's a tough go for you. Yeah, no, thank I am you. nervous a lot. <laughs> no, thank you for that interview. I really like it. And, so, and thanks so much to David for sharing all of that information with us. It was great. We've got lots of exciting things coming up. For the New Leaf Network, lots of events. Um, but I, oh, I did want to say, if you know any academics or any thought leaders that are thinking about these kind of future landscape things, we would love to hear from them or from you telling us who to connect with, because we'd love to share the stories um, and the thoughts of people who are doing really important work uh, and thinking about things uh, in, in the future context. Uh, in terms of events, May 19th in the Company of Women, Reimagining Shared Leadership in the Kingdom. Uh, check it out for the event space registration there. Great time, great speakers. We'd love to have you come out to that if you are in the Toronto area. Church Plant Design Shop coming up on June 2nd and 3rd. That's happening in Etobicoke. Again, information online about that on the New Leaf website newleafnetwork.ca and October 24th we're going to be in Montreal we have the opportunity to have the pre-conference slot for the Church Planting Canada Congress event that's happening there join us on the 24th it's going to be a great time come out meet some new leafers and uh, be exposed to some different thinkers we're really looking forward to all these events and the opportunities that it's cultivating for us to actually meet face to face so thanks for listening we appreciate it we'll see you again next time on the New Leaf Project Bye, friends. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the New Leaf Podcast. You can find us on the web at newleafnetwork.ca or head on over to our Facebook page, New Leaf Network. We have events, workshops, and conversations happening all the time. We would love if you could join us as we share the stories of planters and stars all across Canada.